Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today's episode was recorded live at the Insight Group Brand Marketing Summit in San Francisco. The panel today that you'll hear is was on the topic of a brave new world, developing a culture of marketing innovation. And it included Russell Barnett, who's actually been on the show before. He's the CMO of MyMo Mochi Ice Cream, Karen Kelly, Marketing Services Director at the UPS Store, and Allison Herzog, the former Marketing Director of Global Social Business and Digital Strategy at Dell. I hope you enjoy this panel and the discussion that ensues. I'm Alan Hart. I run a podcast called Marketing Today. If you happen to be at my other panel yesterday, um, thank you. And uh, if you want to download more ep- podcast episodes, please do. Marketing Today with Alan Hart. That's me. But let's talk about these three amazing folks that we've got up here. And maybe we can just run down the line. You guys can introduce yourself, who you're representing. And then uh, what's the one must-have on your list uh, for driving marketing innovation or culture of marketing innovation? Sure. Allison Herzog, hello again. <laughs> And most recently, I have been at Dell Technologies heading the global social business and digital strategy teams. Uh, In terms of my must-have for marketing innovation, you'll probably hear me mention this several times, is that you have to have a culture of trust so that anybody can speak up, whether they want to call you to the carpet and say, I think that's a terrible idea, or be willing to throw out things that feel crazy but are actually, you know, you know, sometimes it's the craziest things that end up really resonating or having the biggest results. So I would say a culture of trust is actually, I think, the most imperative thing for innovation. Hey, I'm Karen Kelly. I'm with the UPS store in San Diego. Uh, we are a subsidiary of UPS and a 100% franchise business, both in the U.S. and Canada. So if anyone works in the franchise business, what's really important as a marketer in uh, really all, all marketing, but really particularly in a franchise uh, business, is that we're very fact-based with our marketing initiatives. We've done our homework, we've done our research, and uh, we're, it doesn't leave a lot of room for subjectivity and, frankly, franchisees' ideas on what our advertising campaign should look like. 
Before Russell goes, I just realized we have the two roses between the two thorns. Yeah, so right. Now with that intro, Russell. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> All right. Uh, hey, I'm Russell Barnett. Uh, I'm the chief marketing officer for Mimo Mochi Ice Cream. Anybody ever had mochi ice cream before? Yeah. Right on. So uh, mochi ice cream, by the way, was invented in Los Angeles. It's uniquely American. We invented this stuff in the 90s. Got a long history of how to put dough and ice cream together if anybody's ever interested. Um, for us, the culture of innovation starts with bravery. Failure is amazing. You've got to find a way to empower your people to make a shit ton of mistakes <laughs> and let them thrive in an environment where you celebrate mistakes because mistakes lead to exceptional creative work. Awesome. I got the opportunity to talk to each of these guys a little bit before we came up here. And Allison, I'd love to start with you about the necessary ingredients for an organization to drive innovation. Yeah, that goes back to where I said, I, I feel like an imperative is that culture of trust. I totally agree on the bravery piece, which because if you don't have that culture of trust where you can have candor within your organization, people are going to be scared out of their minds to say, you know, hey, here's this thing we should do and being brave enough to say it and then brave enough to accept failure. One of the things that I drives me, frankly, bonkers is when anytime my teams bring me back results that are all green and wonderful and like sunshine and rainbows, and I call BS on it every time. The same thing anytime I have agencies or, I mean, just anybody, tech partners, you bring me back sunshine and rainbows, and I'm going to give you one chance, <laughs> one chance to bring me back something where there's room to improve, and the next time, you know, like, we're not going to work with you again. So I think it's a culture of trust, bravery, totally agree on that. But I think it's also cultivating just a culture where you can think differently, where I feel like flexibility to me is one of the most important things. I was having a conversation with somebody earlier about how do you build that right skill set at your company? And my personal belief is it's less about you are an expert. I don't use the word guru. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of words that I, I don't particularly like. Um, you can be an expert in a vertical, and that's great. I actually, I love that, but I feel like you need to have flexibility in organization. I don't like the word ambiguity. I don't use that one because I frankly think organizations use it when what it really means is they don't really know what they're doing. You might get fired tomorrow, and so we're going to call it ambiguity and just go with it. You might not have a job. Cool. I like flexibility because it means... You're willing to be scrappy. You're willing to learn something different. You're willing to do something different, step across the aisle, help out your fellow colleague. And so I think it is that flexibility. It is that can, you know, candor. It is um, trust, bravery. It's those pieces of being willing to step up, do something different, not be afraid to do something different. And at the end of the day, when your results are either fantastic or not fantastic, that you have learnings either way. You figure out, hey, here's what it, you know, what made it awesome, or if it flat face tanked, that you can celebrate it because you've you learned from it. Hard enough. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you have to have some belly flops in life, or you don't understand the joy of when you make it. Right. So yeah, I think I think to me, those are um, some of the basic ingredients of having that culture that actually nurtures innovation. You can't squash it because you screwed up and. If you ever screw up again, you put the fear into people, and then they're not willing to ever speak up again, and then you're going to be boring, and you're going to die. Right. right. Well, Russell, yeah. you've got to... Brand is going to die. <laughs> I guess I should have been more clear. I mean, you will also die eventually. <laughs> <laughs> so if you, if you, that's a great segue. I see Slido up there. So if we're going to give away either tickets to the aquarium or bottles of wine... If you submit a question, but you have, the key is you have to put your name in it so we know who it is. So feel free to submit questions. But now that you're not dead and you're going to submit questions, <laughs> uh, let's go to Russell. Russell, what would you add? I know you've got uh, a unique brand in and of itself. We so do. what would you add to this culture conversation in the organization? So for us, the culture piece of it is your title is your starting point. It is your, I'll call it your domain expertise, but by no means is it your silo that you work within. For me, I'm, I'm not in the procurement department. I don't know jack about machinery. I don't know how one builds a factory to produce a half a million mochi ice cream balls a day where we make the ice cream, mochi dough, mochi ice cream, nitrogen tanks, the whole deal. Don't get the stuff. But I was asked to go over to Japan with my 
my, my head of the facility to buy some new machinery. Like, I'm a marketing guy, man. What do you mean? We go over to Japan, <laughs> buy machinery, do what? RPMs? What? What are you talking about? How many balls a minute do we make? And does that spec add up? But it was really interesting because you're sitting there in this factory that makes these factory equipments, and you're looking at this thing, and you're trying to understand how this fits into your space. And in looking at how the product was made, we understood problems that our consumers were having on, from our complaint department. And we went, oh, wow, that's the problem. We've been trying to identify how that problem has manifested. Here it is. See it on the machine. Okay, here's the solve that we've got to have. And so for us, it was really, really interesting in understanding that what was being done in the back of the house really affected the work that we, we had in the front of the house. So much so that when I came back, I sat down with my team and I said, y'all don't know our balls enough. Mochi balls, excuse me. When you say just balls hanging out there, it's kind of crass, but you put mochi balls, you're all good. Um, you just made it worse. Yeah, I know. I just made it a whole lot worse. I have a bad habit of doing that. Um, but, but it was so important for everybody on my team to understand the intimacy of what goes into making this, that my team actually goes into the back of the facility once a month. We all spend an hour each month on a different part of the facility to better understand and have an intimacy of how the product is made so we can be better marketers on the front end for our consumers' needs, wants, and desires. Awesome. Karen, you've got a unique business in the fact that you've got franchisees. And so I want to talk a little bit about that because I've heard that the insight development is one of the most important parts of your job in driving the innovation. Yeah, it really is. We don't really make anything at the UPS store. <laughs> we, we sell products and services. Uh, you know, I guess you could say if you're putting a document together or packing a box, we're, we're making something, but we really don't make anything. But for us, it's, it's critically important that we're listening to our customers and getting their insights on how to better manage our business and perhaps what kind of products they'd like to see in our store locations. So six years ago, we um, teamed up with a uh, consumer insight company and we have a closed community of 400 of our customers, some of which have been with us since the beginning, about 250 of them have been with us since the beginning. We call it our small biz buzz. And it's an opportunity for these small business customers that we've recruited from our, our customer base to evaluate our products. We send surveys to these groups. Um, this year alone, we've, we've issued 12 surveys on either product mix or advertising campaigns. We share our ad campaigns with them, get their feedback. We share uh, insights on small business with them to get their thoughts and opinions. And as a community, we have a moderator all the time working with these small business customers to uh, have chat topics, and other things that keep them engaged. We do pay them for uh, taking the surveys. It's minimal. And uh, the surveys are issued on like, a Tuesday morning, and we will have a research report done by the end of the week that can really influence and shape and guide the other groups who rely on the marketing uh, team for those insights. So, for example, we could put a new product into the community, and uh, by the end of the week, we would know if they had any interest in, or, in it or not, or how to tweak it and change it to make it better for them. It's been invaluable to be able to issue this many surveys to get results as quickly as we can. It's been incredibly efficient, innovative for us, and uh, very cost effective, quite frankly. That's great. And, Russell, I know you're sourcing ideas as well, but very differently. How are you getting your ideas and where are they coming from? For me, there's, there's no one source. I, I supposedly run innovation, but frankly, the best ideas come from folks in the back. I love that I can stand on the line with somebody. And a lot of our consumer, a lot of our, our, our employees are Hispanic. Um, we're, you know, about 70% of the employees are, are, uh, are that. And the flavor profiles that, that we talk about, and would, could you do this? And would you do this? And could you add fruit? And can you add spice? And what about this? It may not be the end point where we end up, but it certainly provides a great amount of thinking for us. And so for, for me, ideas can come from anywhere. I, I'll sit in the back of an Uber and tell somebody I make mochi ice cream for a living, and they're like, I love that stuff, but you guys should do this. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe, but it does spark a, a, a place to be. So the other piece of that is I'm on the road probably 40-odd weeks out of the year. 
try to be gone just about a night, but I spend a lot of time in market. I spend a lot of time talking to retailers, spend a lot of time talking to our consumers. I spend a lot of time just standing around and loitering and watching people. And for me, that's part of the innovation process is really not being afraid to get your hands really, really, really dirty. And if it means stocking a shelf to talk to a back guy about how you're dealing with packaging or what you're doing from a flavor perspective or how you can better close the gap on a, on a supply chain um, because we, we, we can't break cold storage, those are all important things for us. And, and, and that's all part of the innovation piece that, that we've got to, to take into account, not just simply the, the nice pretty stuff about how are we going to create our next ad campaign or our next social media post. Allison, at Dell or other organizations that you've worked at, how, do you, how have you guys engaged employees to bring these ideas forward and you know, yeah. what examples could you share? Well, it resonates with me too in, just ter in terms of getting your hands dirty. I found that innovation happens at all levels. If you're not getting your hands dirty, then it means you're disconnected. And I don't care what level you are at within the company. Even large companies, that's sometimes the challenge is that when you're just talking about marketing, it does become fluffy. It does become disconnected. It's going to be really hard to understand your audience or resonate with them if you're not actually paying attention, if you're not actually going through what the customer process might feel like or what ideas might live out there. Um, at Dell, in terms of customer ideas, there's something we launched a number of years ago that has actually, I, they've kind of let it die, which I think is unfortunate, but it's called Idea Storm. And the whole point of it was the community to source their ideas. They could say whatever they wanted. People could upvote them. And then from that, Dell would actually source those ideas to go test and learn from. Um, so I think in terms of getting your hands dirty, I think that's really important. In terms of how you foster that employee engagement, that employee buy-in, I think there's a few different ways. Again, I think you have to foster the trust so that people aren't fearful and I think that you have to help people to be bought into your product. If you have people that are working there just to get a paycheck and they don't believe in what you make, they don't believe in the purpose, they're not going to be engaged. Um, so you have to make sure that they understand what you make and why you make it. There's some great um, Simon Sinek videos on the why. If you don't know what the why is, then your customers, they're not, you know, everything's going to fall flat. Um, so I think it's having your employees bought into the why and, frankly, knowing what your why is. And then I think it's including them in that and then finding ways to draw out their own innovation at all levels. And I know we were talking about at FamilySearch, which is a huge nonprofit that I worked for, their partner with Ancestry, Find My Past, My Heritage, which we talked about My Heritage um, in the, uh, story, I think, Story Hunter session. We actually would, something we came up with, I was over the employee engagement project. It was just something, it was a pet project. I was pregnant at the time, and here we were, this very family-oriented company. We didn't have maternity leave. And I was kind of like, this oh. is ridiculous. How do we, like, how am I going to be preaching to people? We're all about family, you know, connecting families across generations. And I'm going to have to hoard my vacation and sick leave to be able to get a paycheck while I have a baby. And, and it's not that our management was doing it with any type of consciousness. They just hadn't thought about it. And so I put a whole, you know, MBA, whole, put a business case together and said, here's why I actually got employee stories and put those in to complement all of the data that I had. And it turned into this employee engagement project that surfaced across. And one of the things that came out of it is, employees didn't feel like they were heard in terms of, hey, we have all these great ideas. And so one thing that came from that was actually having these pitch sessions. Anybody in any part of the company, it didn't have to be marketing, it, you know, it could be product, it could be engineering, anybody, and we would have these pitch sessions, you know, almost kind of TEDx style, and you would have the floor, you could pitch your idea, you know, it was all in good fun, full trust. Um, there were no bad ideas. And there would be a member or two of our senior leadership there, executive leadership there. So you'd get great visibility, which, you know, everybody, um, for the most part, everybody wants. And you'd get recognition for that idea. So it would never become somebody else's. It was yours, the basis, and we could iterate off of it. And the other thing we considered, because in our research in this employee engagement project was, not everybody operates the same way. You might be an introvert. You might be an extrovert. So the way that you want to interact might be very different. And so we also considered how do we provide ways for our employees to be successful in terms of coming up with those ideas and not being afraid to share them.
Speaking of innovation, I'm going to go straight to the question board because he keeps. Good questions. Yeah, good, and good it, question. there's like 14 now. So, oh my goodness. Uh, I guess a People little. Want that wine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or the aquarium. <laughs> so um, maybe let's take the first one. What do you think of innovation titled roles in marketing teams? Does it ultimately mean the marketing team or business is not innovative? I'm going to take a swing at that one real fast. So when I first came into Dell, I actually belonged in the global digital innovation team. So that was that's where in the leadership where um, we were organized. My personal feeling is, and, and Russell, I'm sure you mentioned innovation already yeah. within your scope. Um, I think when you're a really large organization, sometimes you need that title in your group um, or in your your senior leadership to be able to give that group or someone permission to go break the crap out of stuff. Sometimes you just need that. I think when you're smaller, it's so much easier to ingrain, to keep in that culture. Everybody breaks stuff. Everybody think differently. But I think when you get to the size of Adele, you have to give a group permission to go break the crap out of stuff and call people to the carpet and say, you're missing something or, hey, there is... You know, like one of the last things I did was bringing in a Series A company doing AI to totally rethink the sales process. And the increase was so insane that every, before sales didn't want anything to do with parts of marketing. And all of a sudden, everybody was banging down my door to try to get in on this thing, all because we were, you know, we had permission to just do things differently. Yeah, I mean, innovation for us is, you know, it's, it's, it's a job scope, but to your point, it's permission to mess with stuff. Yeah. And I think the other piece of it is if you don't have it written in, it doesn't happen yeah. because it's really, really easy to find the day-to-day -day operations, which will keep you so gosh darn busy that you can't bring that next piece to the organization. And in our space, and I'm sure everybody's space here, innovation is the lifeblood of your organization. And for us, 12 to 18 months out is a really big period of time. And we know that if we can't iterate on a six-month cycle, we're failing. Iterate on a six-month cycle, we're failing. So that means concept to manufacture to on-shelf in six months. And that's an edict that we've built into our organization. So that, to us, predicates the notion that you have to have somebody with that eye under their responsibility. Well, let's go to the next one. Uh, what is your brainstorm process for new marketing techniques, products, or brands? You know, for us, again, I, I'd go back to the, the research that we do, but we uh, will go into our community group with any ideas that have come bubbled up from the group and use that as a, a place to, you know, brainstorming can be scary, right? We talked about it, you know, some you know, everyone says uh, all ideas are good ideas, right? And there's always someone in the room um, brainstorming with you that, um, you know, shoots down your idea and it kind of can quiet people down. But having that permission to use this, this research community for those brainstorm ideas allows people to be um, feeling empowered to go in with no, no questions, a bad question. And some insights will come out of those research studies or communications. We have that community that maybe your idea wasn't perfect here, but you tweak it just slightly and it's a really great idea. So again, brainstorming internally, but being able to put it out to our community group and have them brainstorm with us is really effective. I think for us, we tend to, we tend to look at where, where we do well tactically, because I know that's another part of the question. We tend to look at how do we go to market? Where do we play? And where's our real sweet spot? And we know that PR and experiential and digital are our sweet spots. So then we really focus in on, on those areas. And then we like to find where we failed or where we're missing. And in every one of those things we're missing and we're missing every day. And so for us, it's the idea that we try to find out how to miss one less time that day. Well, um, let's see. What's, what is the best way for a marketing team to propose and implement unconventional marketing tactics within the corporate world? Corporate world in air quotes. It's uh, seriously. Um, sometimes in the corporate world, you got to use data. I personally don't like saying data driven. Um, somebody, I was having a chat with somebody once, and they mentioned this term to me, and I really love it. And I've just kind of clung to it ever since, which is being data informed. So still letting your gut be your guide, but leveraging being data informed. And I think also letting humans do the speaking. And so also that means having a diverse group of people 
both from where you come from, your experiences, who you are. I think those are critical. You know, I mentioned the employee engagement project. So I put all these case studies together. I put all this data together. My previous company now has paid maternity leave, paid paternity leave, uh, flex work. I mean, there's all these things that I was pitching. I think I had 10 different things in this document. They didn't know it was coming. But I, it was a big project, a lot of research, a lot of personal stories that we included. But when we came to, when I came to the CEO with this, in a way that it was buttoned up, a way that could be understood, both from a data perspective, from a human quality of life perspective, all tied back to our brand purpose, how could you not do it? I mean, it was, it was a total no-brainer. So I, you know, how do you get this to be accepted in the corporate world? You look for the data. Um, you know, as an example, customer experience, you know, the intro, um, some of the description on this particular panel was marketing is dead, or that's what some of the research shows. I think it's more a matter of it's evolving and the expectations are evolving. And so if you take that research that says, we got to innovate or die, here's what's happening to the companies that aren't changing, that aren't evolving, that aren't trying new things. Look at their revenue streams, their year-over-year growth. It's not so good. You don't have a choice. You either do at this point evolve or die. The numbers are there. So use your research. You know, at times, maybe combine it with those human stories and make sure it all ties back to brand purpose. And, um, you know, when you're talking to anybody in your C-suite, they go by the numbers most of the time. I think, I think. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The only thing I would just add for us is we, we like to engineer happy accidents. Yeah. So, um, you know, and, and, I, and I underscore the word engineer. The idea that, you know, we, we take a very small but relevant part of our, our budget and we know that that's just going to get, it's, 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 it's our monopoly money. And at least for our, my team, as long as you can correlate whatever the tactic that you're trying to get done as being on brand, I'm down. Because you're going to hit, you're going to miss some. But if you do it on brand, you're not going to miss a whole lot. You just may not get it as far as you'd like it to be. But you're really not doing any real harm. And that's the piece that's important for us is just giving that flexibility and, and laying out the, the, the budget to allow that to, to happen. Because, uh, you know, put something over here, try it. Holy crap, we found something here. Let's run like hell with this thing. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Give people permission to spend some money. Yeah. Let them try some new tactics. Let your agencies try some uh, new tactics. We, one of our pain points is that people know us for shipping, but not all the other things we do in the store. And uh, from that, you know, that insight where we went out and uh, built a new advertising campaign, we call it Beyond Shipping, really was very... Uh, I don't want to say risky for us, but it was very different than anything we'd done before. Um, it's been paying off in spades. We've been doing some conquesting where we're literally getting in front of customers who are standing in the post office, serving them up an ad to get them to come to our brand. We're, you know, measuring those uh, coupon downloads and such. But if we had been not willing to invest money in those tactics and in a new campaign, yeah, just be business as usual. I think we kind of answered the, the next question, which was, are there any specific tactics you've employed to build an environment that encourages failure? I think I would just underscore what I heard from all of you guys is it's really about people-driven innovation. I don't know that I want to say you encourage failure. I think I would say you want to encourage trying things and not being afraid of failure. I don't want everybody to try to fail. Just <laughs> well, I put it as, I just, go as, well. as, 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 as if it's on brand. Yeah. That gives you permission. That that's yeah, the filter that we yeah, yeah. we that's the filter that we 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 have to run with. Yeah. Doing something for the hell of doing something, we're not interested yeah, in that. Exactly. You know, absolutely. Yeah, I hate arguing it.
Well, uh, how do you structure innovative brainstorms or processes to try to spark the creative synergy or creative thinking? I'm kind of laughing at structure and innovative next to each other <laughs> a little bit. That's called transformation, <laughs> cost cutting. <laughs> do you, I do think you have to have some processes in place. Um, again, it, you know, I was talking to somebody attending here, and we were talking about company sizes, and you know, we had a very big difference. Uh, this is from one of the panels yesterday. One person that was on our panel, I think her company was like 150. We had another one that was 18,000, and then another one. Um, that was like 60,000 and you hit a tipping point where all of a sudden you have to start scaling things. And I think when you start having to scale things, you have to add some processes in. And so when you add that structure, I think part of it honestly comes down to company size because you're gonna need to put some processes in place to help that. And then I think brainstorms, it comes down to, is this on brand? So yeah, let's brainstorm. Let's throw ideas out. I actually think part of helping to brainstorm involves getting outside of the office. Yes. Yeah. I think honestly, like For throwing sure. yourself out of, you know, your typical, I think that sparks creativity. I actually one of my things that I love doing is I love Panera because I can go to Panera and I can work for hours and nobody will bother me and I can think differently and not be in my home office or my work office. Getting outside, um, I think that sparks creativity. I would add, I mean, I interviewed, I guess, 150 people now, and yeah. a couple of things that stuck out to, to me is what you just described, which is getting out of the office. And the bigger the corporation, the further removed they are from the actual users of their products. Um, and if you think like an um, anthropologist or a, you know, a sociologist, right, and you're just studying human behavior, you have to go observe them, yeah. shut up, watch them and literally write down verbatim either what they're doing or what you're doing and then bring that back as stimulus for brainstorms or ideas. There's a great um, example of a bakery slash sandwich shop in New York that I love, I love what they did, which was for their stores, you know, we get complaints, people get complaints for their services, their products, what have you. And this new person, she came in and she actually found the people that were complaining and then she actually turned them into asking them to evaluate. And so these people would be coming in, mm -hmm. and now it was their job to tell her what was broken. And so, because if you think about it, and Michael Dell would say this all the time, you know, I would, I would all of a sudden have emails because he would find something. He's like, Twitter, that's Michael. He would find things, a customer complaining or something happening, and all of a sudden there was an email and it was turned into a chain. But it was about actually enabling these people who are complaining and understanding that every person that complains, there's probably five more people that didn't speak up. And so she empowered these people who were visiting these stores to actually now be her direct source of information and improving the customer experience. And they saw their survey scores, their net promoter scores, and their purchase cycles, they all had uplift in a positive way because she empowered the complainers, the people who were just trying to say, hey, something's broken, and maybe they were mad, or maybe they were trying to be helpful, but it was actually using that to be closer to the ground, closer to the customers, and not thinking of it as a bad thing, but as an opportunity. And as a byproduct, they're now your yeah. biggest advocates. Yeah, exactly. Now they've become, you know, like, they're hey, we love this company. They listen. I'm going to go back a million times because they change things when I complain. Listen. We, um, you know, obviously operating 5,000 retail locations, all different shapes and sizes. We're not, we don't build our own uh, real estate from the ground up. We often go out and visit with our franchisees. We have franchisee committees, and we get in the stores, and, and my group also works on the point of sale. And you get in into the store, and you're thinking, man, that was a stupid idea we came up with. Like, that doesn't work. It doesn't fit. That, that you know, so you, yeah. unless you get out there, you can sit in your, you know, office and kind of in a the silo, and you think it's a great idea, and you have this retail environment in mind, and then you go into a New York City where maybe it's 500 square feet and nothing's working. And so really uh, getting out and, and talking to the owners and um, really owner focus groups for us help too. You know, and they don't, they don't have to be serious focus groups. Just take a bunch of people to lunch. Go into a market, take them to lunch, get their thoughts on how the business is going. They'll tell you everything you want to know and they will pay it back in spades with the relationship that you um, forge with them. So that works for us really well. The next question is, how does one eager millennial marketer convince one very old school company, team, 
<laughs> to come into the ways of 2019 and beyond. Uh, I have a thought, but I want to hear from you guys first. Well, again, my organization's really small relative to mm-hmm. what, what you're dealing with. You know, we've got 150 employees, but the marketing team's a whole group of five, and sort of the whole front office is a group of about 20. I, I think for us, what I try to do is I want to understand who people want to be when they grow up yeah. because I'm on my way out. I mean, if, if, if the reality is, is you, have, you, have, you have a shelf life. As a marketer, particularly, you have, you have a shelf life. And for me, it's important to understand what the folks who I'm hiring, who I'm teaching, mentoring, putting, making sure that I'm responsible to put food on their table. I want to know what they want to be when they grow up so I can best help craft that journey that they're going to have in their careers. And so for me, it's a very personal piece to, to our organization and what sort of our why Part of our why, well, we, we like to have more fun than anybody else and play as our purpose and keep the weird. That's, that's our, that's our, that's our triangle. But, but, but that's, and, and, and all of that does fit very millennial. And yeah, we are really millennial focused and all of that stuff, but that's a byproduct. And so for us, it's really important to understand that why is keeping the business very, very personal. And the people are what make our business. It's what's made our business. It's what will continue to make our business. So creating that culture where that is thriving and tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm screwed up. Tell me we're doing it wrong. Show me a pathway to do more right than not. I'm in. And that's the place that we like to to really cultivate. I think so as a borderline millennial Gen X, depending on there's a bunch of different things out there. I'm like, I never know what I am, but just depends on what audience as to what I'll claim to be perfectly honest. (laughs) I'm like, how judged am I going to get right now? Um, I think that sometimes we forget that the people we work with are our customers. And so if you're trying to get someone to change, first of all, you need to walk away from focusing on yourself too much and what you want to have happen. So I would say in this case, I would study, and I've done this quite a bit in my career where I think about who am I going to be speaking with? What's important to them? You know, when they get excited, what do they get excited about? Um, Again, when you see something that sparks energy, what is that? When they're listening to a presentation, do they want to get into the nitty gritty or are they like, oh my gosh, you know, like cut to the chase. You've been talking for two minutes and I still don't know why we're here. Like, here's a bunch of numbers. I don't give a crap. I would like to know what they mean. Everybody has a different style. And so I would say, you know, I don't know what your methodology has been. I don't know how you've approached it. Eagerness is great. You know, having energy is great. It's about knowing your audience and knowing who your customer is within your company and then focusing on how do I help them get to their goal? And you can leverage your own ideas and how, how you help shift that, but you have to think about them first instead of thinking about you first and what you want. I would say that and cater to their needs as opposed to your style. I would add um, one, a personal story. I was a young person at one point in my life. You know, my first company I worked in was really old. I mean, really old. They, they produced mail pieces at scale. So big, you know, credit card companies, they made the equipment that, you know, made the mail piece that went to people's houses. I was going to ask what a mail piece was. Yeah, I know. I know nowadays um, with e-bill. But um, so they made that equipment. I was probably the next closest person to me was at least 10 years older than me. And, you know, trying to push an idea forward, I learned very quickly there was this annoying salesperson, (laughs) very successful, drove me crazy because with one little anecdote they would bring back from the field, they could change the entire plan for the year. But he taught me something. So I, I, I learned not as quickly as I wish. So this is my gift to folks who ever asked that question, is that storytelling can negate hordes of data that you have. And so how you take whatever your plan is weave a story around it, use your marketing skills to weave that story around it and make sure it sticks. And everything in life is sales. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so go sell. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, so we got a quick question here next. Uh, when will you have a two ball single serve <laughs> pack of mochi balls? I was thinking, where are the mochi balls? Yeah, well, you know, the right time. over at Safeway or uh, where are we? I think there's one around the corner. Uh, so we do already. So our business is a little funny. 
we sell six packs of Mimo Mochi ice cream in the frozen novelty section next to your Ben and Jerry's and all the stuff you eat every day. But we're an omni-channel business in that we recognized early on that our consumers didn't go to the center of the store because that's old school and they bring things home and who does things at home anymore? And my freezer's about this big because I live in San Francisco and I can't afford anything. And we knew that sort of the grab-and-go lifestyle was here to stay. We knew that millennials snack more than any other living generation or any generation four-plus times a day. So we installed these uh, grab-and-go Mimo Mochi bars in about 3,000 locations around the country. So you go into your supermarket, and you don't go into the center of the store, but you go to the grab-and-go section. And, oh, my God, there's this just bunker full of color and love. <laughs> and that's where you can go get single-serve Mimo Mochi ice cream. And, by the way, uh, let's see. Uh, millennials, they love that experiential stuff. <gasps> Colors, Instagram, share, wonderful, chew your ice cream, textural sensation. And by the way, I just didn't say the word flavor because guess what? You can't make something taste good. You shouldn't be doing it in my business. So that's that. So we, so in a short, long, short answer, we do already. Nice. Go to your local grocery store. <laughs> a dozen at a time. Awesome. So them all and go buy another dozen. They melt. <laughs> and do a lot of walking. Do a lot of walking. Walking, yeah. Well, you can, you can eat them on the go. So you can. There you go. Walk while Absolutely. you eat. How can you best affect change in encouraging people to try things that might fail when you're lower in the organizational hierarchy? It's a difficult one, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, go ahead. I, you know, if, if we were right now, I think we're just hiring millennials. We, we run an intern program as well. Our interns are amazing. They're so smart, and their technology skills are amazing. Oftentimes, those ideas can bubble up in a smaller meeting, but it's, it's up to us as directors and vice presidents to listen to those folks and give them some stage, give them some opportunity to bring their idea to life with management so that they don't feel like, oh, I've got this idea, but I'm afraid if I share it, it you know, won't go anywhere. It's okay if it doesn't go anywhere. It just, you know, giving them that opportunity to hear them out and move in for, you know, in my role, move it up to the next level um, so that, you know, again, a great idea might bubble out from someone that's just sitting there thinking, you know, there's a better way to do this. Yeah. I think this is, this is a really tough dynamic because you're, you're in a situation where you don't have the power, you know, the, uh, the authority. I would say, you know, I'm a consultant by training and by trade, I guess, most recently, looking for those people that are first movers inside the organization um, that can you can leverage into champions is a great way to create some leverage, create a movement for yourself to try to impact the organization. That's one way to do it, as well as pre-sell the hell out of everything that you're going to recommend. Don't show up to a meeting and surprise people. Everyone in that meeting should have already heard you talk about this, and you've heard their objections to that, and you've started to work it through with them before you present it in a big meeting. Those are a couple of thoughts I have. So we've got time for a couple more questions. There's always risk when bringing an innovative product into the marketplace. How much do you rely on a regional test marketing before fully launching a product? All the time. Yeah. We, we choose markets because we have to get buy-in from our franchisees as well. They're not obligated to sell every product that we uh, bring into market. Uh, so we have almost some proving to do in our market tests, not only with our store owners, but as well as the um, consumers. And uh, we'll test it in markets, and we'll tell them we're going to put extra advertising in that market, and they get really jazzed up about that. So we, we pretty much test everything in different markets throughout the country. Yeah, we do uh, something similar. We can go at it a couple different ways. One is we can pick a retailer partner. And for us, not every retailer is the right partner, especially when you're talking innovation, especially when you're talking testing. So you, you've got to find those, those partners who believe in what you're doing, believe in your brand, and believe in and are very forgiving because it does take time. Things don't just show up on a shelf, and all of a sudden they're selling at thresholds that a retailer might like to see. So we can start that way. Um, and what that means on, from our side is a stronger investment from a trade program. What it means from the retailer side is you get a little bit of, a little bit of trade dollars, but you've got to give the brand and this item or what we're doing a disproportionate amount of attention relative to what others may be seeing. So 
In our case, it's end cap display. In our case, it's more facings. In our case, it's secondary locations, things like that. So that's truly important for us. And that's how you do it sort of regionally. The other way you can go about it is, is again, going back to your partners. And you may take a target, for example, and they'll want to try it in 400 of their stores and start, instead of 1,200 of their stores. And so we can then start and slice and dice sort of a retailer at, at national scale. And we have a hypothesis of, of where we think something may have a higher rate of success. And what we can do is, again, have that moment of you've still got to treat it in a different, more unique way within that arena. And then if it rolls out well, we've got that runway within your organization that gives us permission to roll it out in, in the other 18 odd thousand stores that we've got. Awesome. So this next question I love, so I don't know if they know my podcast format, but uh, we'll go down the line with this one. What does the future of marketing look like to you? I can kick that one off. Um, future of marketing. So. Man, I'll be honest, sometimes when I, uh, when I read things, when I attend conferences, all these different things, I, South By, you know, I live in Austin, so I used to attend South By, and mostly because there's so many partners there, and so frankly, it's just kind of convenient, but now that I live in Austin, everybody avoids it, and I kind of get it now, but you hear so many buzzwords, and you hear about, you know, remember a couple of years ago where AR, VR was all the rage? <laughs> I mean, it was going to change the world, and... There were so many things where I attended, and they had Google goggles, and Snapchat came out with their glasses, or Snap came out with their glasses, and there were all these different things. And it doesn't mean it was wrong, but we're just trying to constantly figure out what's next. And where I go when I think of the future of marketing is there are buzzwords, and some are going to stick, and some aren't. But what I think is really what I see as the future of marketing is that human psychology, human nature, human behavior doesn't really change. And so I actually find that some of the best marketers, I have a background in psychology, I find that if you understand human behavior, if you understand the psychology of a human, and you keep up to date on those things and you marry it with how technology is transforming our ability to deliver to those basic needs and those desires and behavior, that's what I tend to think of as the future of marketing. And so when we think about how technology, we heard the, the really great Fireside chat earlier on what 5G is gonna do for us. I just look at how technology, you know, I, I can't say exactly what the future of marketing is going to look like because we can't even imagine. I mean, I still feel bitter that the Jetsons promised me that food would be <laughs> done in an instant, um, but like not microwave meals we get. I mean, I really, when I was a kid, really thought that I'd have a Rosie the Robot. And I really thought that I would have, you know, like a pill that all of a sudden magically turned into food. That didn't happen, but we do have, actually, technically, with flying cars, we do have robots. I have a robot that vacuums my house every day. It's awesome. So I think it's keep on dreaming, but at the base of it, future of marketing is continue to look at what drives human behavior and how we tick. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm betting a bit on the um, Penny's presentations yeah. this morning with uh, 5G. And I've seen you know, media types, radio. Radio was dead for a while. Radio's back. Podcasts are... <laughs> like crazy popular right now. But with some of that technology she was talking about this morning and she mentioned it is, uh, I think, outdoor advertising. And uh, I think the newspaper could come back. I mean, the way they're going to be able to integrate technology into your newspaper or magazine where you can literally click on it, see a video, see more product uh, integration, I think there might be something there. I could be wrong, though, because I didn't think reality shows would last. <laughs> <laughs> when they first launched. So I could be dead wrong, but I think there's something there. I think some of us hoped that they would die. But... And now I really hope they'll die. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm not going to go there. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, um, for me, I'm going to sort of back to where you were. I think it's less about how it's, the tactics are going to change. The basis for this is, is absolutely right on. For me, it's the connectivity of your mind and your heart. And that's the basis for building emotion. That's the place where if you're successful, you're going to connect those two because one or the other is just hollow or emotive about purpose or heart. I'm a big studier of, of cultural anthropology. Yeah. And if you want emotion to reside, you've got to have conflict. You've got to have conflict. And in my space, conflict is cool because it's dough or ice cream. So yeah. I kind of dig that. And that's one of the things, actually, when I took the job, I was like, I can't find conflict in the brand, so i got to find conflict in the product. Yeah. And that sort of helped us create the platform that we had to go at. But when you have conflict and you find conflict in your marketing, 
it creates a great way to continue to tell your story. And it goes back to storytelling. And when you tell the story in a compelling way, and I don't care what the technology is, it could be a newspaper, it could be word of mouth, it could be a billboard. It's a connection of all of these, use the old 360 marketing jargon. But the fact is, is it comes back to storytelling and whatever your tools are, if you can't come down to that basis and finding that basic human truth, yeah. you're just failing. Well, let's leave it right there. <laughs> Thank you for my panelists. So everybody give a round of applause. Marketing Today is brought to you by Atomic. Atomic focuses on unleashing the growth potential for clients we serve. Atomic is a strategic consultancy specializing in business, marketing, brand, and innovation. Our singular goal is to help you accelerate your efforts with the right mix of expertise, analysis, and creativity. Check us out at Atomic.com. A-T-O-M-C-K.com. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me, with writing and editing by Kevin Greeley, social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners, and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.